This is the smell of the leftover tuna fish sandwich you left in your lunchbox over the weekend in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blech! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag. Hefty, hefty, hefty! Ah, smell the difference? Hefty Ultra Strong has Arm & Hammer with continuous odor control, so no matter what's inside your trash. Hmm. You can stay one step ahead of Stinky. And for bigger jobs, try the superior strength of Hefty Large Black Bags. You ever seen a ghost? Been abducted? Heard your name whispered from the other room when you're all alone? No, you say? Me either. But if you're like me, you're still fascinated by the paranormal. It seems everyone else has had an experience, and you want to believe it all. So why doesn't it happen to us? What does it all mean? How does it work? Is any of it real? Welcome to Paranorm Girl, a show that will attempt to answer these questions by taking the paranormal completely apart in search of proof. I'm not a blind believer, nor a hardened skeptic. I'm just looking for answers and willing to accept what I find. What's spooky with you? Not the ending I was expecting. I had never seen The Exorcist before. It looked old, sitting there on the shelf of our local video rental shop. But it was Halloween. This was the tradition. And based on my mother's initial big warning of you'll never be so scared again in the car, and now her apprehensive stare of genuine fear, I returned my attention to the simple black and white cover of the silhouette under the street lamp. I nodded and snagged it from the shelf. We wandered around for a few more minutes before grabbing one other nondescript horror flick for our annual Halloween tradition of scary movies and junk food. My sister and I had become far too old in the last few years to trick or treat anymore, so this was the new Halloween for us, and I still do it to this day. I was so scared, I slept with a Bible for weeks after I saw this movie. My mother proclaimed driving home. Yeah, right, I thought, looking down at it in my lap. Even the back description looked dumb as I convinced my internal teenage heart and mind that no matter what, I was definitely not going to be scared watching this lame-ass movie. Even though the thought of possession was a scary thought to me. And demons. And the devil. Would watching a movie like this open me up to Satan because it would make me that afraid? I had heard that being afraid of dark entities attracted them to you. No. Impossible. They wouldn't make movies like this if that were possible, right? They wouldn't continue selling Ouija boards if it was a literal portal to hell, right? We got through the first film, some slasher, and after a quick restroom break and refill of popcorn, we watched The Exorcist. My smirk and rolling eyeballs throughout said lame. My tightening stomach told me how I really felt by the time the credits began to roll. That wasn't bad at all, I said. Yeah, okay. We're out of firewood. How about you hop on outside and grab some, my mother shot back. I sighed, put on my best bored face, and proceeded out the front door into the night. Across the yard, to the dark mound that was our unstacked firewood. My eyeballs peered into the quiet dark surrounding me. Scenes of projectile vomit and the violently unusual use of a crucifix replayed in my head as I bent over and started loading small chunks into the crook of my arm. My stomach was still tight, my ears were perked, my eyes were ready for any sudden movements in the shadows as I told myself there was nothing to be afraid of out here and there was definitely nothing that was going to happen to me like it did to Reagan. My hand landed on one final piece of wood when I felt the presence behind me. 
and the second I felt the sharp, painful jabbing of bony fingers in my sides, I twirled and I swung. Couldn't help it. My firewood bat connected with a face. My assailant went down. The initial surge of adrenaline was replaced by remorse as I watched not a demon, but my friend who had joined us for a movie night, cradling his now splinter-riddled cheek. We laughed about it later. So that was my own personal story about the first time I watched The Exorcist when I was young. While this ended up not being a paranormal, unexplainable tale, it was a memory that has stayed with me throughout life. Even then, this idea was terrifying for whatever reason. We weren't a religious family, didn't go to church or anything, didn't even own a Bible. So I can't tell you exactly how I learned about the concept of the demonic or how I already knew there was something to fear, but I was aware. And even then, I was resistant to full-on belief, had a little skeptical spark in me. I also had good reflexes. I still think back on my reaction to being poked and no, even after all these years, that should I find myself in a dangerous situation, my first reaction will be to strike. Welcome back to the Paranorm Girl podcast. I am your host, Kristen. So, as you might have gathered, we are indeed covering the story behind The Exorcist. It was made into both a book and then a movie, and in numerous ways, this story helped to define the demonic in our modern times. But talking about the story behind the writing and making of this cult classic brings up a severely dark side to possession, to exorcism, to demons in our pop culture, as if it weren't dark enough. And that dark side is possession and exorcism in children. This is going to be one of those episodes that might make you angry. Before we begin, I really hope you all enjoyed my conversation with paranormal investigator Jason Fife. He is a cool dude. I had fun and very much look forward to hopefully having him back on for another conversation at some point. Um, I have a very interesting conversation coming up here next week with world-renowned psychic lawyer and psychic explorer, Mark Anthony. I am literally bursting with excitement to share that one with you guys. Uh, we will be talking quite a bit about his new book, The Afterlife Frequency. I've read it. I love it. I recommend it. As someone who can really appreciate when science meets the paranormal on the playing field, it is right up my alley. If you guys want to get you a copy before listening to that episode, head on over to www.afterlifefrequency.com. Check it out. I think you guys would really dig it. And finally, before we get started today, let me smooch smooch with our sponsor for a sec, My Rental Company in Pullman, Washington. Beautiful homes, awesome customer service. The process of moving or finding a new place to live can be stressful. Not with these guys. They are Pullman's go-to for high-quality rental properties. Call them. Do it. 509-338-4653. My Rental Company. Your property is our priority. Thank you guys for supporting the show. All right, let's jump in. 
The original novel, The Exorcist, was penned in 1971 by William Peter Blatty. Two years later, he would also write the screenplay and produce the film version of the same name, directed by William Friedkin. The book was a success, and while the film, upon its initial release, had a bit of a rough start, the seemingly bad publicity of public outcry and cities trying to ban it from their local theaters put it smack dab in the center of a cultural conversation, helping it to become the first horror film to be nominated for an Academy, which I think that is so cool. I just learned that trivia. So the story, of course, follows the young daughter of a film actress who, after playing alone with a Ouija board she found in their attic with her imaginary friend, she begins to act strangely, using foul language and showing abnormal strength. Other things happen, her bed shakes, poltergeist-like activity occurs, and when a friend of the mother's is killed one night after babysitting a very clearly not well little girl, it is concluded that she is officially possessed and needs an exorcism. Cut to the chase, ultimately she is exorcised of her demon after some rather dramatic and graphic scenes of this ritual taking place. The puke scene, the crucifix scene, the neck twisting all the way around scene, truly iconic. Now, this story was inspired by a true life account of a possession and series of exorcisms that took place in 1949 of a boy in Maryland. Blatty learned of and became inspired to write about this real life case when he was attending Georgetown University. The real-life boy actually recently just passed away in 2020 at the ripe age of 85 and up until then had been able to maintain his anonymity after spending his entire life afraid that people were going to find out that he was that possession boy. His possession experience took place when he was 14 and suddenly began hearing knocking and scratching coming from within his bedroom walls. Some poltergeist activity occurred at this time, such as items flying around his room and his bed and chairs moving all on their own. The family's reverend cited these occurrences when he reached out to Duke University's parapsychology department, detailing out what was happening with this family, noting that the wooden floors of the house were all scuffed and scarred from the sliding of heavy furniture. Now, based on the account, You read they supposedly did run this kid through a battery of tests before they went the exorcism route. So that would be great if that is what happened. But from the sounds of his close relationship with his aunt, who was into spiritualism and taught him to use the Ouija board prior to her death, and from the sounds of the kind of fixed and overbearing type of personality his mother was, like... If, if you guys ever get the chance to look into the story and what all happened, there are a lot of instances that occur that seem very precise and directed and, like, convenient, you know? Like, like this story was always going to go this way. It was always going to end up in exorcism. So, yes. Anyway, after making sure it wasn't anything explainable going on, the family's minister apparently, after himself witnessing some of the poltergeist phenomena, made the recommendation that they see a Catholic priest. The events that follow are a little long-winded and complicated, so just let me let me simplify them for you. 
The boy had numerous exorcisms in numerous locations across a couple of states. Throughout the course of his experience, he was seen by various clergymen and priests, a few of which corroborating some of the claims the boy was making about his bed shaking and objects moving on their own accord. One of the priests, Walter Halloran, claimed that at one point the kids started speaking Latin and that words like evil and hell suddenly appeared scratched on the boy's body. Reportedly, after all of this craziness, the young lad was ultimately freed of his demon or demons and went on to live a relatively normal, quiet life. The original story and reported events are riveting. I can see absolutely how and why this would make such an incredible book and film. But skeptics and investigators have had 70 years now to take a crack at getting to the bottom of what really happened, and you better believe they did or made a good attempt to. Most notably, the poking of holes done by writer-investigator Mark Opsasnik for Strange Magazine. I've read through the stuff he found, and I gotta tell you guys, as soon as holes start getting poked in the most basic of information about a case, it makes it very difficult to find the rest of it credible. Mark discovered many of the details in this story to be altered, such as where the boy was reported to have been living, also whether adults actually took him first to Georgetown Hospital for treatment, as had been reported. He also discovered that one of the exorcisms didn't even take place where it supposedly had, and that a lot of the commonly accepted aspects of the case were actually based on hearsay and not at all documented or fact-checked. He also found zero evidence that Father Edward Hughes, who supposedly performed the child's first exorcism at his family's home, did nothing of the sort. He never visited the family at their home. He never performed an exorcism on him after being admitted to Georgetown Hospital. There is a pretty well-known part to this story of the boy somehow managing to break off a piece of spring from his hospital bed and slashing the priest with it during the height of the exorcism. Unfortunately, Opsasnik could not find any actual documented evidence that this ever occurred. What Opsasnik did discover, thanks to the accounts of the family's neighbors and the boy's own friends, was that he had been a very clever trickster who had pulled pranks to frighten his mother and to fool children in the neighborhood. A skeptic named Joe Nickel poked holes in the words and messages purported to have been etched into the boy's skin. It seems that on one occasion, a word was discovered in a fairly hard-to-reach place, but Nickel said that a determined youth, probably even without a wall mirror, could easily have managed such a feat, if it actually occurred. Although the scratched messages proliferated, they never again appeared on a difficult-to-reach portion of the boy's anatomy. Others have brought up the spiritualism influenced by the ant. They've brought up the overly controlling nature of the mother, which we didn't really get to today, but know that she played a big role in how this story rolled out. And she even actually directed some of the story by putting two and two together at one point when scratching was heard under the floorboards or knocking or, or something along those lines. And she called out, is that you, Aunt Tilly? And some have mused that perhaps the father, too, was in on this massive publicity stunt creating the knockings and scratching noises himself. Though that option is only hard for me to buy, as from what I understand it was radio silence from this family and the kid as soon as that final exorcism 
occurred. So they didn't get a book deal out of it. They didn't make any money off of it. In fact, the boy would spend the rest of his life hiding in plain sight. Is it possible that they enjoyed the media attention to begin with, but it just, you know, got away from them? Absolutely. Demonically influenced or an attention-starved family. Or just a bratty teenage boy acting a fool. The story is still fascinating, however you want to swing it. All right, you guys, for the remainder of the episode, we're going to be getting into some cases of possession and a few fairly dark examples of exorcism recorded in children. Some of the more modern exorcisms, especially, that we will talk about are a bit upsetting. So major, major trigger warning here. Um, A lot of these modern cases were done in a very DIY sense and ended horrifically. There's, There's no easy way around it. They were terrible. So we shall tread through very delicately and respectfully on those. And if this is sounding like it ain't for you, that is totally okay. I understand. It's not my thing either, but it is part of this education on this subject that I think is important to at least be aware that it exists. So the first case I want to cover is actually quite old, um, but it's still considered a convincing example and classic case of demonic possession and exorcism. In 1865, two brothers, Theobald and Joseph Bruner, 10 and 8 respectively, out of nowhere began drawing pictures of demon-like characters on the walls of their bedrooms. Just as any child with a healthy imagination might talk to their imaginary friend, the boys would whisper at night to their demon friends that no one else could see. It is reported that every two or three hours, both boys would contort and knot their legs up with each other so tightly that no adult human pressure could untangle them. Shortly after this development, they began vomiting great quantities of yellow foam, seaweed, and foul-smelling feathers. It is said that until holy water was sprinkled in their room, it would remain unbearably hot in there even though the stove would be unlit. Reportedly, furniture would fly all over the place, windows would burst open, and the entire house would shake violently. Over time, it is said their bodies would start to bloat, and they continued with the vomiting of weird stuff that they reportedly had not eaten. They were often covered in the seaweed and vomit. Father Bray, who became involved in their case early on, reported that any time any clergyman or pious Catholic entered the home, the boys would crawl and hide under a table or the bed or even jump out the window to get away. As opposed to when someone of less fervent faith entered the home, the boys would be delighted, even one time exclaiming, that one is one of ours. They should all be like that. Interestingly enough, the boys also ticked off another activity of demonic possession when they took on seemingly psychic abilities, and it is said they were able to predict the deaths of people who lived in their town. They were seen levitating at different points, and their fascination with the devil and hatred of any holy or sacred items increased. And finally, it is noted in the record of this account that the boys somehow acquired the ability to speak in languages that they did not know, including English, Spanish, and Latin. The boys themselves were French. For four years, the boys apparently suffered like this until finally they were sent to St. Charles Orphanage to undergo exorcisms. Theobald was sent first and spent the first few days in complete silence as he was held by three men and forced to stand before an altar. 
Finally, he broke his silence by proclaiming in a voice that was not his own that he had arrived and he was furious. Asked by a nun who he was, he replied, I am the Lord of Darkness. The exorcism would continue with Theobald now in a straitjacket to keep from thrashing all over the place. When the father overseeing the exorcism called upon the Virgin Mary, Theobald screamed in agony and suddenly slumped over, immediately in a deep sleep. When he awoke, he didn't remember a thing and didn't know why he was there. His little brother would follow for his exorcism just a couple weeks later. His exorcism would be a little less intense, lasting only a few hours, but... Just like his brother, it would end with him suddenly falling into a deep sleep and upon waking, not remember a thing and not know why he was there. The reason this is still considered one of the most convincing cases is the number of people involved corroborating each other's versions of events that were taking place. The levitation, the vomiting, the blasphemy, the, um, the abhorrence of holy objects, household objects moving all on their own, the, the speaking of languages they didn't know, and the moments of clairvoyance. It's convincing because it would mean that not just all of the nuns at the orphanage or the priests who oversaw the case from start to finish, but that the entire village who all were familiar with what was going on, of course, some of them and their families personally being affected by these boys premonitions of death, it would mean that the people of the village were also lying and this was one giant conspiracy and hoax. Entirely possible. Still a fascinating account. In August of 1893, a 17-year-old Sicilian girl suffered from a painful condition which her family suspected was being caused by demonic possession. They confirmed their suspicion with the village Strega, or witch, who not only agreed, but impressively enough was able to provide the name, character, origin, and power of the demon who had taken over the girl's body. The Strega recommended she perform a ritual on the girl to exercise the spirit on the Feast of the Assumption of the Virgin, thinking that day would be most fitting to cast out evil. On the scheduled day, the Strega prepared a giant boiling hot bath containing snail shells, lobster claws, and nettles. The girl was then placed into the boiling water with a heavy blanket placed over her and a pound and a half of burning incense placed beneath. The shrieking of the girl went ignored. As soon as she lost consciousness from the pain, they pulled her parboiled body out of the bath and laid her on a bed. Before she took her last breath, the Strega said, now the charm is beginning to work, and the demon is about to go out of her. In 1991, ABC aired America's first televised exorcism of an emotionally disturbed teenager named Gina. This was a high-profile event, and her exorcism was authorized to occur by the Archbishop of New York at the time, Cardinal John O'Connor. After all was said and done, and after the girl's mental illness was successfully treated with antipsychotic medication, this telecast was rightfully considered to be exploitative and misleading. Reverend Richard McBrien would say, Televising this was indefensible. To sprinkle holy water over serious and complex problems is to trivialize them and ensure that they continue. A producer for ABC at the time said that while releases were obtained from both the girl and her mother, the two had felt pressure from the church to cooperate. That's pretty awful. But the girl, thankfully, left the experience with her life and was properly treated in the end.
Unfortunately, even in our modern times, there is a very dark side of possession and exorcism in children that is horrific and heartbreaking. Following a couple of very high-profile cases of faith and belief-linked abuse and death of young victims in the UK in 2018, government statistics showed that witchcraft and possession were connected to almost 1,500 potential cases across the country in a single year. But even that number at the time was thought to be an underestimate. In Britain, it is thought that thousands of children could be abused by relatives who believe they are either witches or are possessed by evil spirits. The beliefs are very real with very real consequences if taken to the extreme. In the past, adults trying to rid the child of the evil spirit attempt to burn it out, cut it out, strangle it out, drown it out, or starve and beat the child. In an article by The Independent, Dr. Lisa Oakley, who is a senior psychology lecturer at the University of Chester, said that the abuse stems from genuine belief systems where people believe they are doing the right thing for a child. Researcher Insp Davis says that abuse of children related to witchcraft and demons is often hidden in plain sight because most people don't actually know what signs to look for and they don't understand it. He says that though the beliefs in witchcraft and spirit possession range in communities and religions across the country, they are very common beliefs within both Christianity and Islam where a lot of the victims surface. Even today, an internet search can yield groups offering their exorcism services and claiming to cleanse demons and evil spirits for a price. One online ministry referenced in this article who offer this service blames things like depression, financial issues, and health problems on supernatural forces. While mainstream denominations obviously still offer their exorcism services, there are some truly horrible cases of exorcisms in children that happen behind closed doors in a very DIY fashion at the hands of the adults that those children were supposed to be able to trust. These cases were very hard to get through, but it's important that we draw a line in the sand here. And in order to do that, we need to be aware that this crap is going on. And not just in some faraway country, by some backwards-thinking, archaic-type belief system or culture. It is happening here, in our own backyard, in modern times. We didn't do nothing wrong. We did what the book of Matthew said. All we did is ask God to deliver him. That is what Pastor David Hemphill told the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel newspaper. On August 26, 2003, Torrance Cantrell was murdered in Hemphill's brother's church during an exorcism. He was just eight years old. We were asking God to take this spirit that was tormenting this little boy to death, Hemphill said. We were praying that hard, but not to kill. What was tormenting this boy so, you might ask? Well, you see, Torrance was autistic. His mother had been bringing him to her newfound church three times a week for the three weeks leading up to his death in hopes of curing him of his autism. This church blamed evil spirits for his condition. So, they wrapped him tightly in sheets, three adults held him down, and then they prayed. After an hour of prayer, one of the parishioners noticed the boy was no longer moving. That is when they called the emergency services, but it was already too late. 
Church members claimed that they only wrapped Torrance in the sheets to keep him from scratching himself or others. But his grandmother told reporters that force had been used, that he was restrained, held down, and smothered to death. I was unclear what the denomination of this church was or what their usual exorcism protocol entailed, but this whole story definitely has an off-the-books type energy. But that was almost 20 years ago. Though it was horrific, maybe we've evolved since then. Surely we would never do anything so monstrous now. In 2020 in Sri Lanka, a mother took her nine-year-old daughter to a local exorcist who beat her with a cane to unconsciousness. The girl died shortly after at the hospital. In 2019, Pablo Martinez of Tucson, Arizona, held his six-year-old under scalding hot running water because he had noticed just earlier that week that there was a demon inside of him and he needed to exercise it. Allegedly, when the police department arrived, Pablo wouldn't let them inside and told the officers that they wouldn't understand, that they weren't in the right mindset. A four-year-old girl in 2020 and a two-year-old girl in 2011 were both beaten to death because their parents believed they had demons in them. And we're actually going to stop there because I think you guys get the point. If it is not obvious to everyone listening that there was nothing supernatural about these exorcisms, no demons involved, no Satan necessary that every single one of these cases was torture and abuse at the hands of people and people alone, then I think maybe we've gone off the rails somewhere. Perhaps some of these cases were brought on in a sudden episode of delusion or psychosis, but if the fear of some arch-villain boogeyman had not been implanted to begin with, I guess no one will ever be able to say that these extremely unnecessary exorcisms would not have taken place. This was parental filicide, and it's actually nothing new. It's ugly, but has been occurring since the dawn of mankind. Today, it's estimated that 500 children die every year at the hands of their parents here in the United States. As with Britain, I'm willing to bet that number is a smidge low. Altruistic filicide meaning a parent kills out of some twisted sense of love for their child. They believe that death is the kinder option. And it's not always because there is an evil spirit inside the child. You know, sometimes they do it because of an illness or a deformity. So, yes, this type of thing is nothing new, but it will always take whatever vehicle is available to the parent at the time. Unfortunately, I suspect that until we can start having a very open, unbiased, and honest cultural conversation about religion, history, spirituality, or afterlife theory, and start deconstructing the lies that our ingrained beliefs are built on, and dissolving the misinformation about all of this stuff that continues being passed down generation after generation, unfounded fears of the supernatural variety will continue to be used as a vehicle for abuse. The only way to combat fear and ignorance is with knowledge and with the truth. I hope, no matter where your belief lies, that we at least agree on that. 
that is going to end the discussion for today. If you have anything to add to it, I am always available to listen and to discuss. Email me at paranormgirlpod at gmail.com or message me on the socials. The handle is at paranormgirlpod for any of them. That's a wrap for today. Here's your final note. It's episodes like this that always remind me of why I started this journey to begin with. These extremely hard episodes, the ones that go the darkest. Having the knowledge in hand, even if it's terrible stuff, that is power. You can make decisions based on that. You can make a change based on what you know. Here is what I know now. This subject of demons and possession goes so much deeper than a simple discussion on the paranormal. Identities are built on this stuff. Lives have been lost because of it. But it's because it's tangled up in people's religious superstitions. Here is my current line of thinking. I need to separate the religious aspect from the paranormal aspect in order to keep going with this. I can't keep juggling demons with sin and the devil and the Bible because, quite frankly, while I am already inclined to think that these are two separate subjects to begin with, I am not going to argue someone on their religious beliefs. But ultimately, No, I I don't believe that the devil must be real for demons to exist. And if that were the case, and that being said, if we could strip away doctrine and this fundamentalist view of darkness and evil and just inspect the demon as a standalone entity, I wonder if we might see something unexpected. So here's how I'd like to proceed. While we do still need to take a look at other cultures, exorcism practices, the history of exorcism, and a tiny peek at the study of demonology itself, I'm not convinced of possession by evil spirits. There are aspects that make me hesitate, absolutely. But convinced? Not yet, anyway. So, I'm going to need to see the poltergeist activity, the levitation in motion, the books flying off the shelf. No fishing line, unedited. Thank you. If I cannot find something before the finale that convinces me beyond a shadow of a doubt that possession by an evil entity, or sure, a demon, is real, then it may be out of the question for me. But we shall see soon enough. And before I sign off today, I just wanted to say this. I've never had so many people of differing opinions involved in this show before. It is making it hard, but has been a good reminder to reel it back in, get back to the original idea, and make it simple for myself. So, for the pastors and priests who have followed me recently over on IG and Twitter... For those of the occult persuasion who have reached out, and for those of the horror crowd seemingly everywhere I turn, all of you are welcome. I hope you find something useful here. But you should know, there is going to be no agenda. 
I do this for the basic bitches like myself, the skeptical believers of the paranormal. It's not about a thrill, and it is not about a faith. We are fascinated by the mystery, the potential, the possibilities, and we crave the information. But at the end of the day, we just want the truth. Stay safe, keep the nightlight on, and sleep with one eye open.